This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Last week, we concluded our discussion of Paulo Coelho's wildly popular book, The Alchemist. And today, we want to honor a second South American writer with an almost similar name. The Hispanic way of saying Paulo is Pablo, and of course, the wildly popular Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. And what a character Pablo Neruda was, both as a writer but also as a political activist and what today we would call an influencer, although that word wasn't really around during his lifetime. He did have an expansive life, and his prolific writings, he did write more than anyone we've studied so far, uh, are very interesting in many ways. Interestingly, his writing really, it kind of is a direct reflection of his wild and diversified life. People say, not just about him, but about a lot of people, that it's impossible to separate the person from the poetry. Uh, And in his case, there's really no point in trying. Pablo Neruda was born on July 12, 1904, and died on September 23, 1973. On the day he died, he was still working to publish no less than eight books of poetry, He wanted to publish them on his 70th birthday, along with his memoirs. So, let's take a walk up into the mountains of Chile through the life of Pablo Neruda, which, by the way, was not his real name, his pen name, and his birth name was Neftali Ricardo Reyes Balzualto. And the poems I want to highlight are not the complex, difficult ones but the ones that I think are the most accessible and the most fun, and in my opinion, the ones that people enjoy the most, unless you count the like erotic ones, but we're not going to go there, his odes. And there were actually four volumes of these things. That 
is a lot of odes. It is. And I hope we get a good working explanation of what an ode is here in just a minute. We'll give it to you. All right. Um, over the course of his life, he did live through an extreme amount of political change, and not just in South America. Uh, it seems that, to me, at one part, although clearly not only, only part of what people like about his work, is that he chronicled in poetry how he and millions going through these same adverse times felt about the many changes that were going on in the world, and a lot of that he witnessed firsthand. That's really true, but uh, let's start from the beginning. He was born in a very small town down in the southern part of central Chile, and he stayed in this little town pretty much through his teenage years. Even as a child, he wrote a lot, and this was not well received by his family. Uh, But he actually, I think, was probably really good. And by 1921, he's age 17, He'd already won some literary prizes and had become a contributor to a literary journal and had already adopted his pen name, Pablo Neruda. He moved to Santiago and not too long after that sold everything he had to publish this first little book of poetry that's called the Crespus. I really don't know how to say this word. It's not even a real word. He made it up. So oh, it's, I don't speak sense. Spanish, but even if I did, I think this would we'll be difficult. We'll use your best difficult. Portuguese. It's crepusculario. Uh, crepusculario is how you say it. Uh, and amazingly enough, it sold pretty well, uh, although he did have to publish it under a pseudonym because his parents were very embarrassed of his chosen occupation, never mind the fact that he had all these erotic poems in there although they weren't near as sexy as the ones that he was going to write in 1924. And his next book, which was a hit, called 24 Love Poems and a Song of Despair. That's quite a title. (laughs) (laughs) It was. It was his breakout work. uh, And honestly, it's been published in 24 languages. So the 24 Love Poems and a Song of Despair was actually very well received. It sold over 2 million copies and actually really influenced a lot of uh, Spanish literature. It got him a lot of public acclaim and it gave him somewhat of a reputation as a poet, although he was kind of known for his erotic and romantic poetry. What do you think of that? (laughs) Well, I think it was the 1920s uh, and you know what was going on everywhere else in the 1920s. So love. (laughs) Well, if you go to the United States, we're, we're having the the wealthiest decade ever. And it's uh, the great Gatsby era. All right. And he was kind of in that vibe. I don't Uh, know if that was going on in Santiago as much as it was in the United States, but that was the time. Well, Nareto was a really passionate man and he felt things uh, to me when I read his work. I feel like he feels everything so deeply. And in these poems, he's just this man desperate for the love of this woman. And he sees her disappearing from his life. And after 21 poems, he just arrives at this moment of utter despair. The last poem, the one that's the, the he says it's the love poems and then despair poem. The well, despair poem is just this vivid description of a woman's body and she's equated to the earth and there's passion and there's sorrow and there's loneliness and all these metaphors and it's goodbye, farewell. Uh, 
if you're interested, you're going to have to pursue it a little bit more deeply because, honestly, it's a little bit too hot for this podcast. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, and I like what we're going to read anyway for this uh, episode of the podcast because I can understand it. <laughs> True. Well, anyway, after his success uh, in poetry, it was kind of a thing at the time in Chile. If you were a successful poet, you could get these political appointments, and that's what he wanted to do. So he got an honorary consul position. I don't know how important you are if your honorary consul position is to Burma. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, no disrespect to the Burmese, but that's where he went, and I don't even think he made any money at it. And then after his stint in Burma, uh, he ended up in Sri Lanka. So the it was a little bit... Um, difficult to live over there and he wasn't making a lot of money and it was a hard life and so he did what all young men do when life is hard or or when they're in Burma or if you're stuck in Burma with no money he drank a lot and started skirt chasing <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> he chased a lot of women and one particular woman, Josie Blitz. What do you think of that name? That's an awesome name. So Josie Blitz, that's her real name. That's not her, her, her Bliss. Her, Bliss. Mm -hmm. She fell madly in love with him and stalked him, even though I don't know that it was requited love. She actually followed him all the way from Burma to Sri Lanka and uh, pursued him and all of these love poetry and all this all these love love poems had something to do with her. Although it didn't go well because they turned from love poetry to depressed poetry, hmm. and he well, she ended up, is a she is a muse either way. <laughs> either way, he ends up publishing three poetry books of real modern, what we would call modern poetry at that time. They're really well received, but they're kind of depressing. He borrows a lot of techniques from the West. He loves Walt Whitman. You see a lot of that in his work. Uh, but we what we really start to see in his style is he compares himself uh, and he wants to write from the perspective of the common man. And this is a little bit like what we saw in Steinbeck uh, and maybe even Langston Hughes. He wants to be viewed as a man of the people. Well, he becomes a real man of the people because he marries this chick he meets in Indonesia. Uh, they have a little bit of a love, but that is a little bit that's the operative word there it was okay. a little love and then by 1934 he's done with her and he's landed himself in a job in barcelona at the chilean consul where he's going to park out for a little bit and meet some people that are actually pretty important he also uh has a daughter there so he gets involved with politics and in changes a lot of his ideals and becomes a flat-out communist because Spain in the 1930s is one hopping place. It is. And before I jump into Spanish politics in the 1930s, which are extremely complicated, I want to go back to Chilean politics, the politics that he left behind at home, because uh, Chile was having its own um, growing pains politically during that time period. So by 1925, when Naruto is a young man, they were uh, they had a new constitution in Chile that increased presidential powers and it separated church and state. And then a few years later, they're going to come underneath a dictatorship. And then a few years after that, there are going to be communists and socialists and radicals that are trying to uh, create all kind of 
new government programs and parties inside Chile. So uh, anyway, there's a lot going on in Chilean politics to get him all stirred up. There are all those elements of communism and socialism, and there's even some fascism that's growing in Chile. And out of that political milieu, um, he is then going to go over to Spain. And while he's in Spain, oh my gosh, in the 1930s, if you know anything about Spanish history, very, very turbulent times. Spain was a political hotbed of Republicans and communists and anarchists and fascists. About every ism that was an ism during the 30s was existing in Spain during this time period. Uh, in 1931, Spain had become a republic, and it was the second Spanish republic, which meant they'd had one before that, and that had failed. They were on Republic Number 2. By the time we get to 1936, uh, Naruto is out of the country, but all the forces that were prevalent when he was there in 1934 eventually are going to uh, conflict and create the Spanish Civil War. And the Spanish Civil War is really pretty much regarded as the rehearsal or the precursor to World War II. The Germans were there. The Soviets were there. Uh, communists and uh, fascists were clashing in the streets. And anyway, Madrid and Barcelona, the two major cities, Madrid in the west, Barcelona in the east, get dragged into all the political turmoil. And he's there right in the middle of all that while it's all brewing. Well, and I think he's kind of looking at it. And I'm, I'm going to take, this is my perspective, and I don't, I don't know how well I can speak to this, but he comes from Chile and he sees the, the the powerful people and then the little people. Then he goes to the Far East and he sees the powerful people and the little people. Then he comes to Spain and he sees the powerful people and the little people. And in 1936, he has a really close friend, actually, Federico Garcia Loca. He watches him get shot to death. I don't know if he physically watches, but he's there when his friend gets shot to death by Francisco Franco's troops. And it really alters the way that he looks at the world as a whole. And he writes a lot of political poetry and really tries to bring public opinion down to bear, not just on Franco, but this idea that, you know, people take advantage of other people. And I would like to point out that Franco is of the fascist uh, groups in the Spanish Civil War. And I want to point out another thing, too, a similarity between his experience in Chile and Spain is that both those countries were in this transition of leaving monarchy and conservative concentrated power. And these countries were now in the experiment of uh, dispersing power to the people. And as that happened, the people were creating competing political groups. So there's some similarity between the two countries. But I don't think he really even pays attention to the nuances of that. He just sees human suffering because you're going to see that he's going to equate over the course, because he, he writes a lot of political poetry, he equates oppressors, be it from America, be it from corporations, mm -hmm. be it from politicians, be it from radical leaders that are emerging like Franco. All of them are those people that want to own or, or control other people. And he kind of is going to always identify with that other person. Which is going to be the uh, political stew that will lead him to become a communist. Exactly, it's exactly what it does. Now, that's on his professional life, if you want to call it that, political life. Personally, you know, he's all wrapped up in his, he's got his erotic side for sure. And he's going to fall in love with another woman. He's going to actually have, I think, three big loves in his life. And so now we're on love number two. 
Delia del Caril, uh, they lived together and finally married because uh, she had this problem in that she was already married to somebody else. She had to divorce her husband, which she did in 1942. Uh, that was a, a big year for him because he gets married, but also his sweet little daughter uh, from his first marriage dies of hydroencephalitis. So you have a lot of passion going on in his life. He, mm -hmm. And he feels everything really deeply. He gets married. He has this death. There's this political turmoil. And in, in all of that, he decides to move back to South America. And you know what else is going on in 1942? Tell me. World War II. There is that. <laughs> so it's a very complicated time. Well, he's going to jump out of the war because he's going to go to South America where, you know, that's not the front. Well, true. Is, yeah. Well, not only not the front. Most of the countries are not involved. <laughs> that's true. And he's going to do a lot of exploration uh, of South America, the continent, and the people thereof. And ultimately, that's going to be where he's going to write what I think has been really considered his masterpiece, if you want to think it that way. He writes this epic poem called The Canto General, and it's published in 1950. It's an epic poem about the entire continent of South America. It has 231 poems. Oh, my. And I don't know if I can overstate how much this guy writes. I mean, yes. he just writes and writes Prolific. and writes. He is. It's political. It's historical because he loves that side of it. But he also has this other side. It's very passionate. And he feels things very deeply. Some of the most famous parts, and I think, you know, if you look up Parliament Naruda, part of the first thing that's probably going to jump out uh, from Google is his writings about Machu Picchu. Because when he goes to Machu Picchu, he just, like everyone does, wow. You know, you're, he was in awe of the history. He's in awe of the architecture. He's in awe of the natural beauty. And he tries uh, to write all this out in the epic poet form. And I would like to point out, you too have been to Machu Picchu. Well, that's true, but I didn't write an epic poem about no, it. No, <laughs> but you did climb to the top and make it back. Well, anyway, his poem is metaphorical. He's going to compare America to a bride, but he's going to see this bride, and he starts out by looking at Machu Picchu, but he extrapolates it across the continent uh, that's being raped by Europeans. And he's not going to consider it just to be like the conquistadores of the ancient days. But he's looking at it from, you know, these corporations from America. He's talking about these dictators. So South America really has had a lot of turmoil over the years. They haven't had the stability like uh, we have had in North yes, America. Their transitions to democracy have... Uh, have been violent. And, and, and people have suffered. And he, he tries to explore all these and, and discuss the pains. Uh, but not to... So that's what you see in him. He's got all this pain, all this political stuff. But then you have the natural beauty and the common people. And he finds heroism in indigenous people. And he finds heroism... And working people, and I, I have an excerpt I want to read because I think it kind of, kind of, I haven't read anything that he's written so far, but kind of show a little bit what he's talking about. He says this uh, from this is from the Constitutional. When the trumpet sounded, everything was prepared on earth, and Jehovah divided the world among Coca Cola Inc., <laughs> Anaconda, Ford Motors, and other corporations for the F United Fruit Company Inc. The juiciest was reserved. 
the central coast of my land, the sweetest waste, and that's W-A-I-S-T, of America. So you, mm. you take that excerpt. There's a lot of biblical language there. There's right. an exalt, a lot of exalted language, but it's also super sarcastic uh, as he feels like, you know, his people have been, have suffered, bottom line. That's where you go from there. So anyway, in 1949, a year before this particular book or this epic camp comes out, Neruda, who's been a member of the Senate, and he is a communist, he's a declared communist, he gets in trouble. His mouth gets him in trouble, ironically, because he's defying the censorship laws of Chile. And not only does he get himself expelled from the Senate, but the Chilean government, who has declared communism illegal, uh, goes after him. He is he's given this speech on the Senate floor called I accuse <laughs> and it's not well received again. And there he goes. He has to go into exile and flee for his life. But Well, but even during exile, what does he manage to do? Find true love again oh. <laughs> for the third time. <laughs> I think this guy can find true love on the moon. Oh well actually he this is the real true love. I think Matilda Urushia Rutia, I think is her, is how you say it. She's gonna be the real deal. She becomes a secret inspiration for him. He's still married to Del Carheel, so no judgment, but he's gonna fall in love with Matilda Matilde and uh there's a bit of a love triangle. He has to get out of this entanglement and get into this other relationship and they have secret love for quite a while and there's a movie called, if you're interested, The Postman that came out in 1994. It was actually nominated for about five Academy Awards. That gives you all the details of this problem. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, all that to say, 1952, he's going to return to Chile. He divorces Del Carrillo and he finally marries Eurichia. Eurichia. I, wish, I really wish I could say that right. But by this time... Uh, he's super famous worldwide. He, he's got all. He's got his erotic poems. He's got his depressing modernist poems. He's got the poems that he wrote during Madrid that were really Spanish and fancy and cryptic and symbolic and all the things that good writers are supposed to write. And then he comes out with this Canto General, which is these epic poems about Chile, and uh, the world has taken note. He even wins the Lenin Peace Prize, and the Stalin Peace Prize. And he gets to go to the Soviet Union in 1953 to be honored by the Soviets. So this is the man who has crossed the world and made himself a name and on all the places. Can I uh, take a moment just to point out the irony of the Stalin Peace Prize? <laughs> the Lenin Peace Prize is bad enough, but the Stalin Peace Prize? I know, I But know. nonetheless... If he's traveling to the Soviet Union in 1953, um, that's fair. yeah, that's a that's a huge commitment to communism. That's the height of the Cold War. I feel like he probably believes more in the communist ideals than Stalin does, because Neruda is a true believer. I mean, he really does he believe is, in the common man, and he loves people. And I don't know that you can really say that about uh, Stalin, but. Well, I'm also going to say this as far as communism goes. He was ahead of his time in Latin America. Communism, the surge of communism in Latin America will come later. So he was an early adopter. 
as he was in all things. And I do think part of his biggest influence is that he is an influencer. You know, mm. he, he is on the front end on a lot of things. But anyway, we're going to get to the 1954. And this is the stuff that I'm interested in. He's going to come out with his odes. Uh, the first book is called The Odes Elementales in 1954. Then he's going to come out with the Nueva Odes Elementales. That means the new elemental odes in 1956. And then 1957, he's got this third book of odes. So there's 180 of these suckers all <laughs> together. And then like after, in 1959, he publishes another book of odes as well as a book that he's going to call 100 Love Sonnets to His Wife. He is a busy writer. He is. I think Eurytia was really, truly his true love. By the way, they're going to end up settling down. They move on this isolated island for the rest of their lives. Well, they don't stay on the island only for the rest of their lives, but they kind of they kind of um, huddle there a lot. He has a couple of other houses, but they really settle in. And, by the way, you know, the, his dream of communism never comes true in Chile. Oh, no, and nor nor most places. <laughs> okay. Not even in his own life. I mean, he, he's kind of well-to-do. Hmm. But what he wants to do, and I think his communism really boils down to what I see as the heart of his odes, is celebrating what is common, what is of the people, what is useful, and what is beautiful in simple things. And that's a very important point to make, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because as we get ready to talk about these odes, especially when we talk about some of the topics of these odes, you need to understand his understanding of what he's writing about. Right. Uh, you know, Pushkin, the Russian poet, said that uh, odes were the lowest form of poetry because they were they lacked a plan and they were just a mere rapture and they excluded some of the elements that he considered to be more refined. Pablo Neruda is not going to deny that, but he thinks that's what's good about him. Well, yeah, so Pushkin may be right, but guess what? Before before Pablo Neruda starts writing all of his odes, he's already written massive right. volumes of other styles. And this is one of the styles he hasn't gotten to yet. Well, he's proved he kind of reminds me of Pablo Picasso. And I'm I'm not going to say I know a lot about Pablo Picasso, but what a, one thing I do know about him, and he's Spanish, and, you know, Neruda likes the Spanish stuff, mm -hmm. but he could do all the technical art. But what he loved to do was demonstrate his perspective on life kind of with more of a simple technique. And that's exactly what Neruda is going to refine in the latter part of his life. Yes. Now, let me tell you what an ode is. An ode, it's a literary technique. It's lyrical in nature. So, in other words, it's not narrative in nature. It's trying to express emotion. It's not very long. And generally, they're going to praise people, natural things, scenes, abstract ideas. So, they're kind of like a tribute to something. They come from the Greek. Originally, the Greeks used them as songs or chants. They're usually solemn and serious. A lot of times they have exalted or elevated language. Their tones and subject matters can be really formal. They had elaborate stanzas. 
Traditionally, you have really kind of three types, and this probably is more than you want to know about odes. <laughs> uh, this is already more than I ever I knew know. about odes. You have the most common one is the Pindaric ode, and it basically is going to have three stanzas. You're going to have the strophe, the anti-strophe, and the epode. And it, bottom line is, you're going to take something that you really, really like, and you're going to explain what's really great about it, and kind of exalt it into something. Uh, that should be praised. So what he does is takes what Neruda does, which is kind of a twist on the Greek form or even the English form of an ode, is he takes something that you wouldn't think was all that great, and he wants to show you what's great about it. So like he might talk about an onion and tell you what's great about an onion, or he may talk about a tomato and tell you what's great about a tomato or talk about maize and tell you something that's really great about maize. And he's going to elevate it the same way that we would write an ode to something that is actually really, everyone knows is exalted. That's an interesting technique and an interesting point of view to even want to take. Right. So uh, I've picked a couple that I just like. They're not, I don't know which ones are his most famous. I don't know if there is such a thing. If you say Google what are Neruda's most famous odes, you're going to get, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 different things. Because I'm not sure there's a general consensus on that, like there might be with uh, John Keats or William Wordsworth or some of these other guys that, you know, are, are famous on the English side. But uh, the one that I like is Ode to My Socks. <laughs> I like it, too. I liked it before I even read it. Because if you can write a poem or an ode to your socks. I know. And you're so- gonna, and everyone loves socks, but they have kind of a bad rap for being stinky or whatever. Well, I think most people are indifferent to their footwear. <laughs> they put them on and take them off without giving them much thought. And here's a, a learned man of letters who's going to take time out of his Nobel Prize winning life. And tell us why socks are so awesome. Exactly. So what I want to do is I want to kind of read the poem to you, uh, discuss it, just kind of overview of of what he's trying to say, and then discuss kind of the context of his odes in general, and then read you a second one. And then... Which is even better than the socks. (laughs) And then kind of let you explore from there. I think if I were going to give an assignment to classes, which I do a lot of times, writing odes is fun. People find something that you like and and talk about why it's great and find something that other people don't necessarily think is great and prove it to them. And that's kind of what he took on as a challenge 180 times. Well, honestly, I can see the art in that. If you can look at something extremely mundane and glorify it in lyrical form, that's Oh, that's a pretty considerable skill. Well, it is. And in Neruda's early works, he tried to write in this complicated meter, and he had all the symbolism and the abstract ideas and the complicated images. But he said, ah, done with that. I'm, I'm a communist. I, I believe in the common man, so I'm going to write poetry that common people can understand and enjoy. So I wonder if communists love Ode to My Socks. <laughs> I mean, Naruto would convince them that they are. Oh, well, let's find out why socks are so glorious. All right, let me read it to you. It says, Oh, to my socks. Now, one more thing. You have to remember that these aren't written in English. They're written in Spanish. So I'm not going to analyze it like the way that we would analyze something that was written in English because we don't have the nuances that you would expect. But he says this. 
Mara Mori brought me a pair of socks, which she knitted herself with her shepherd's hands. Two socks, as soft as rabbits. I slipped my feet into them as if they were two cases knitted with threads of twilight and goatskin. Violent socks. My feet were two fish made of wool, two long sharks, sea blue, shot through by one golden thread, two immense blackbirds, two cannons. My feet were honored in this way by these heavenly socks. They were so handsome for the first time, my feet seemed to me unacceptable, like two Greek decrepit firemen, firemen unworthy of that woven fire, of those glowing socks. Nevertheless, I resisted the sharp temptation to save them somewhere as schoolboys keep fireflies, as learned men collect sacred texts. I resisted the mad impulse to put them in a golden cage and each day give them bird seed and pieces of pink melon, like explorers in the jungle who hand over the very rare green deer to the spit and eat it with remorse. I stretched out my feet and pulled on the magnificent socks and then my shoes. The moral of this ode is this. Beauty is twice beauty, and what is good is doubly good when it is a matter of two socks made of wool in winter. There you go. <laughs> it's nice. It, well, it is. It's a very kind uh, tribute to footwear. Yes. And so he uses kind of the Pandaric model. He's going to have three stanzas. And in the first stanza, he's going to start off with this kind of history of the sock. So <laughs> Mary Mori brought me a pair of socks. And he points out that, you know, when somebody brings you a pair of socks that they've knitted, that in of itself makes it special. So she knitted herself with her sheep herder's hands. And there you see he's honoring the working man and the mm -hmm. efforts of people that contribute to our lives and make our lives beautiful by sheer effort and will and work. And so then, of course, he's going to, there's a lot of similes and metaphors in here I'm all throughout. And he's going to say two socks as soft as rabbits. And, of course, he's going to put his feet in them. And then he's going to compare them to twilight and goat skin. And he's going to call them violent. <laughs> I don't know. I guess he's moving around. And you see this image. Two, so he's looking at himself, put his feet in his sock. And he says, my feet were two fish. So you see them like swimming in the socks. Two long sharks. And two immense blackbirds, two cannons. So all the things that you can look at your foot with a pair of socks and see. So it's very imaginative and it's fun. That's what these O's are meant to be. They're supposed to be fun. What do you think of when you look at your foot squirming in the sock? Well, these are all the things he's looked at and he's going to call them heavenly socks. They're handsome. And then, of course, he's going to say they were so handsome for the first time. My feet seem to be unacceptable. So his feet, and of course, a lot of people say feet are weird looking. And, they, <laughs> and he's going to call them decrepit firemen, unworthy of the woven fire of these glowing socks. So you see, of course, this is kind of exalted language. It's hyperbolic uh, about the socks. That's stanza one. And that's all one sentence. Look at stanza two. He's going to say, I resisted the sharp temptation to save them somewhere as schoolboys keep fireflies. This idea, if we find something great, we try not to use it mm -hmm. because you don't want to get it messed up. And that's 
Karma. He wants to honor it by using exactly. it. Exactly. You don't honor it by looking at it. You honor it by using it. As learned men collect, collect sacred texts, there's you know, another simile. I resisted the mad impulse to put them in a golden cage and each day give them bird seed and pieces of pink melon. And then again, you're personifying it as if it was something alive. But he's going to say, like explores more similarly in the jungle. So he's comparing it to something yet again. He's going to stretch out his feet and pull on the magnificent socks and then shoes. And then, of course, the last stanza is the moral of the ode, which I it's love. It's rare to see a moral added at the end of a poem. <laughs> I know, but this is lo- lovely. Beauty is twice beauty. And you can look at it different ways. You can see it's twice beauty, maybe because it's two socks. But I really think he means it this way. It's twice beauty because it's beautiful, because it's a labor of love, and because it's useful. And what is good is doubly good. When it is a matter of two socks made of wool, especially if it's winter. <laughs> and Chile can have some cold winters. Well, you've been there. Yeah. In the wintertime. Yeah, indeed it can. Well, then that means later on I'm going to go look at my sock drawer and, and just view them with new respect. And that's what Neruda wants you to do with everything. That's the whole idea behind the odes. He wants you to read the ode, go and look at whatever it was, and say, huh, I love you a little more now. (laughs) I have great respect for you. All right. Well, uh, on to the next one, which I would like to read, titled Ode to a Large Tuna in the Market. I know you did not see that coming, right? (laughs) So before we read it, what do you think a large tuna in the market would look like? Um, It's probably going to have its head and tail cut off. It's probably just going to be this filleted big part of the fish how big do you think that is like uh pretty good size couple pounds i don't know you take two hands to hold it i'm imagining having never bought fresh tuna in a market in chile before i couldn't tell you but anyway so here we go here among the market vegetables this torpedo from the ocean depths a missile that swam now lying in front of me dead surrounded by the earth's green froth these lettuces, bunches of carrots, only you live through the sea's truth, survive the unknown, the unfathomable darkness, the depths of the sea, the great abyss. Only you, varnished black pitch witness to that deepest night. Only you, dark bullet barreled from the depths, carrying only your one wound, but resurgent, always renewed, locked into the current, Fins fletched like wings in the torrent, in the coursing of the underwater dark. Like a grieving arrow, sea javelin, a nerveless, oiled harpoon. Dead in front of me, catafalt queen, catafalt king of my own ocean. Once sappy as a sprung fur in the green turmoil. Once seed to sea quake, tidal wave now simply dead remains. In the whole market, yours was the only shape left with purpose or direction in this jumbled ruin of nature. You are a solitary man of war among these frail vegetables. Your flanks and prow, black and slippery, as if you were still a well-oiled ship of the wind, the only true machine of the sea, unflawed, undefiled, navigating now the waters of death. 
Again, you see kind of the same thing. He sees a fish at the market, and he's going to go, huh, what are you like? You used to be something. Yeah, you're kind of like a bullet, a swimming projectile. But there you are, sitting among lettuce and carrots and grapes and all those things, and you're dead. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) And he keeps coming back. He talks about the grandness of your life, and then he ends the, the stanzas with, you're dead. Yeah, so it's the beauty of the tuna juxtaposed against the fact that it's dead. The one thing I want to point out about this one, uh, if you could look at this, and if you go to our website, we're going to have uh, PDFs of these poems. They're not written in sentence form, like all the way across. There's like one or two words on each line with lots of commas, and they're very vertical. My copy, it takes two pages, and there's probably, but there's only like, three sentences in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So he plays around with uh, the way that it physically looks on the page. And he does this with other things. He makes arrows out of words and goes across the page and he sprawls. And he wants to use a lot of deliberate, simple syntax. Because he kind of thinks, and and he even says this, that it's the simplicity and the transparency and meaning that's going to make it fun. And he wants the odes to be fun. Actually, as he got older and older, you see his poetry getting simpler and simpler and simpler. He wants the person that's reading it to have an open and playful mind and not have a preconceived idea about what a poem, oh, I'm going to read a poem, When we say that, then you expect to be immediately confused. He doesn't want that to be the case. He actually says this, and I'm going to quote him. He says this, I want everything to have a handle. I want everything to be a cup or a tool. I want people to enter a hardware store through the door of my odes. So what does that mean? It means that you're going to be able to grasp it. You're going to be able to walk around, pick up plain things, hold on to them, and point it out. And that's... What's great about it? He talks about potatoes and bricklayers and craniums, and he's just going to say what's great about every single thing, what's fun, what's great, what's playful, what's good in the world. All right. Well, those are the odes. After the odes, he is going to write a lot of biographical, personal, political. I mean, the man writes until he's out of this world. He Literally, truly does. On the day of his death, still yeah. collecting works. In 1971, he receives the Nobel Prize. By 1973, he's got cancer, he's bedridden, but he still is writing. And of course, in September of 1973, Pinochet is going to take over Chile as dictator. And this really breaks Naruto's heart. You're right. His communist dreams are not yes. going to f- come to fruition. So 12 days later, and I mean, he dies of cancer, but people say he also died of kind of heartbreak he uh he dies his house is ransacked by the pinochet people and of course his books are published posthumously and continue to sell well well there you go we have uh, been introduced to tuna and socks and naruda and naruda (laughs) all right well thank you for joining us on our latin american journey we spent time uh with the Brazilians and with time with the Chileans and 
Portuguese and Spanish and traveled to the Sahara Desert and Andalusia and Spain uh, and all over the place with uh, Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist and Pablo Neruda's works. Exactly. And if you take anything from the poetry of South America, I hope you take that. They want you to love your life in the simple and the complicated times. Find something to be passionate about. Find something to love. That's South America. Oh, that's great. It's a great summary and a great lesson. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Um, we hope you've enjoyed it, what we talked about today. We'd like to invite you to be our friend on Facebook. Check us out on our Instagram page. And as we always like to say, go to our How to Love Lit podcast.com page. There are teaching materials there. There are links to the uh, poems that we talk about and all kinds of other useful information for people who want to learn more and they need more literature in their lives. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.